Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are in a series in the first part of the book of Ephesians. And if you've been here at all, you know I get pretty jazzed up about the book of Ephesians. And so um, I love this first part. Uh, we are calling these first three chapters rooted and established because what we're really looking at is how the Apostle Paul is addressing the early church as expressed in the city of Ephesus and looking and really just pouring an identity fire hose on them about who they are, not just in and of themselves, but because of who God is and what God has done in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we have this first three chapters that's really rooting us in that. And then we're going to have Lent, and then we'll get to the second part of the book of Ephesians that really gets into the, the living this out. But we don't want to get to that part until we've really just dwelled richly in chapters one through three, because all of what Paul will talk about next is based on this piece of who we are, what God is doing in and through Christ with us. So this first part I've mentioned before is chock full of big truths about God in different parts, emphasizing different pieces of this. For those of you who like the big terms, we've talked about um, well, I'll go through them, but if you don't, it doesn't matter. Like the terms don't matter as much as like the truth that Paul is establishing in this glorious work of God, right? So we started out just taking snippets of his own words for our different sermons, right? So we started out with grace and peace, just an introduction of what Paul was doing, the culture in Ephesus, and how we're not so different in Chicago today as what we were seeing in Ephesus in some ways. And so this is still really relevant to us. We went on and studied that amazing, in Greek, all one sentence thesis statement, uh, praise of his glory that talks about all that God is doing, just this identity piece of his will, his purposes, and just this outpouring of praise for what God is now doing and has been fulfilled in Christ. And when we went on and we talked this um, abundance language, everything in every way, the high view of Christ, Christology, that's just the all-encompassing nature of all time and space of what is accomplished in Christ. And then we talked um, by grace you have been saved. So we spent a while establishing all that God is doing, God's plans and purposes and power, all of that, before we get to the reminder that it's just by grace you've been saved through faith and not by works, right? And so that's sort of where we've gone. That's, that's um, big, big marks about identity, about Christology, about um, sanctification and salvation. Those are for the big word people, but for the not, it's like all of God's plans in this rich morsel of truth that's in always trying to remember where we are in an arc, not just pull scripture out outside of its bigger arc. And so now as we go into this morning, he's already established by grace you've been saved through faith, not by work, so no one can boast, right? This is just a gift. All the plan I just told you about God all of it's just a gift. And now he expounds on this vision of believers, new life in Christ, who are saved by grace, seated with Christ in the heavens and created to do good work. So now that's what we just established. And now he goes on from there. 
And so he still is emphasizing this gift of salvation, but now he's talking about it from a slightly different angle. And so today we're honing in on this idea of now being fellow citizens, drawing together two people groups that were previously at amazing odds, and now they're united in this one citizenship by the Spirit. If, you're, if you geek out on the big words, this is ecclesiology. This is the church, the study of the church's role in the world now. Okay, so there's the arc, right? Where we are in this letter, but first... It's all based first, before we talk about who we are as church and the plans and purposes and power of God, right? We got that established. What is going on in Christ, how we are currently in Christ, that language is all throughout this uh, letter, and that the power is through the Spirit in us. So these are the big things, and now we can talk about where do we fit in to that big, huge truth. And so that's where we go. Again, trying not to go too fast, but to enjoy this rich morsel. Um, but some of it, when it just sounds like a whole bunch of church language can just feel like, let's get through this into the, what am I supposed to do then? Or something like that. And we're not going to do that. We're going to do a rich morsel. And today's rich morsel is actually formatted like a sandwich, which is it's just going on with a pun that I wasn't even meaning to continue on, but it really is sandwiched. If you're looking in your Bible, the NIV translation actually separates our sandwich into three paragraphs. And what we see is, so verses one to 13, he's talking about the Gentiles, position in Christ, both past and present. And then the deli goodness of the sandwich is 14 to 18. What God is doing in Christ, actions on behalf of the church. So it's again, it's centered all on what God is doing. And then the last uh, piece of bread, 19 to 22, returns to the Gentiles position. So it's where are we positioned, what Christ has done, deli goodness, where we're positioned. It's like the sandwich of this section that um, most of the scholars that I was reading are, are taking this as one move one sandwich intentionally to make sure that we know our position, but we keep Christ and centrality in that. Okay, but first, we have to just talk a brief moment about some language that's foundational that we're going to see today, and some of it is strange if you haven't been in church a long time. If you've been in church a long time, this might be review, but remember, not all of us have. So imagine if you are if you've known this a long time, imagine you don't. And if you're new, just know all of us thought this language was weird for a while. We're talking about circumcision. There's a real winner to talk about in church. We're talking about blood. Why do Christians always talk about blood of Christ? Like that's weird. We just sang it this morning. I had to write it down. Um, blood that bought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. I won't sing it for you, but you know, like if you're not, if you've not been around church, that's weird. And what are the like Jew and Gentile? We talk about this all the time, but like whatever. Okay, so here is our quick reminder of some foundational language or new information if you're newer to church. Because you guys read this with fresh eyes, and like that, that some of this paragraph is weird if you if you don't know that language. So we're gonna just pause and get to a couple things. Let's talk about Jews and Gentiles. Jews were um, the people, the nation of Israel that was um, uh, picked uh, based on the person of Abraham in the Old Testament, where God made a promise to Abraham, I will make a nation out of you and through you, I will bless all people. Though that nation is the Jewish people. Gentiles are everybody else in the world. I am a Gentile. Um, 
I am not born into the nation of Israel. I've been grafted in because I believe in Christ Jesus, but I am by ethnicity a Gentile in this story. Jew and Gentile. It is a frequent conversation in the New Testament. We talk a whole lot about this because the cultural hugeness of this was a really big deal. So who Paul is addressing, Gentiles are everybody else, right? But in this context, he's talking to you Gentiles who now are following the way of Jesus. That's a subset of Gentiles, what would later become known as Christians. Now, Christians in the early church were Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah and Gentiles who believed the same thing. And these two groups are coming together and trying to be a new thing and it's culturally very hard. That's why we talk about it so much in the New Testament, okay? So um, passages like this, I'll pause to say this, passages like this historically have very, 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 very sadly been used to foster anti-Semitic sentiments, like uh, negative towards the Jewish nation. I think that's heartbreaking to God. I really, really do. And so I want to equip us to honor the arc of the story of all of scripture now that says this isn't supposed to be an us versus them. This is a continuation of the story of God that was birthed and stewarded by the Jewish nation in a beautiful way. We are a continuation of a story. We are not of this. And so I want to make sure that we understand that big picture so that we don't accidentally pick up an us versus them that we can kind of hear in this because of the unique cultural challenge that this early church was facing. Okay, Jewish people were chosen by God not because of anything they had done, but just through a person, again, by grace, through faith, right? And it was attributed to Abraham as righteousness. And so it was just a, here, I'm going to pick you, and you are to be set apart to reflect the character of God to the world around you who does not know the one true God. So set apartness was not a snob thing. It was a reflect something different thing. It was a beautiful thing. Reflect God's character to the world. Reflect covenant faithfulness in a world that was not about covenant faithfulness to the one true God. The rules that we can look at and say, you know, because we talk a lot about the law. That's in the New Testament too. This was a group of rules that was to keep this beautiful holy nation set apart in special ways to reflect God's character. And it might seem legally, whoa, legalistic to us, but if you study it and understand its countercultural way, it's to say you're going to be set apart and different. You're going to have justice for the marginalized. You're going to take care of them. When people quote that whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, whatever, and they're like, yes, retribution. No, it was say like, don't take a life for an eye. Don't take an arm for a tooth. It's saying like, calm down, be fair. Don't go overboard in retribution. It's all stuff about justice and care for the widow, orphan, stranger, foreigner among you. They were to be marked by something beautiful and these laws were to help them figure out how to do it. And there were certain marks and means of restoring holiness. Things like um, marks, uh, 
on their bodies, circumcision, or marks of uh, how they dressed or how they practiced Sabbath keeping. These were marks, and then there were means. And by that, I mean like um, a, a system of sacrifice and atonement. If these are new concepts to you, I highly recommend The Bible Project has a great theme video, free, online. The Bible Project themes, sacrifice, and atonement. And it's really helpful. I'm not going to go through all that now, but if this blood talk is strange to you, I understand. Like, you guys, all this stuff, the cleanliness, circumcision, blood, these marks feel foreign to our modern sensibilities. And to that, I say, that's okay. It doesn't need to be okay to us. It makes sense in their culture. And so we need to honor that, right? So you can learn more. I highly recommend that video, but let me just say um, this part that tries to understand the blood a little bit. How does um, shedding blood overcome alienation and produce reconciliation? The answer has to do with ancient covenant rites in which treaties are enacted, inaugurated, or made valid through blood sacrifices. And so it's not accidental that immediately after that, Paul says, Christ is our peace. So the blood happens and then peace happens. Not Christ made peace. Christ himself is our peace. Paul means in that that Christ himself in his own person and death is the destroyer of hostilities. Counterintuitive, right? Because blood sounds super violent to us. But it's the thing that, that could destroy hostility between Jew and Gentile and therefore makes two people groups, those two people groups, into one new person. And so unity has been created where previously there was no such unity. And we can talk really briefly too, because like that blood stuff, if that seems weird, and like it also seems weird to us that you would identify two people groups on their circumcision status. Are you wondering how many times I'm going to say that word? Jerry, I'm almost done, but there's maybe one more. But it's important, again, strange to us, but it was a mark of the covenant faithfulness that we need to accept. Their set apartness was to reflect God's character and relational covenant faithfulness in and through these Jewish people because through them the promise went on to Abraham all the nations will be blessed and that's the thing that we talked about in the last couple weeks with the whole inheritance uh, adoption language and all of that so it's not that these cultural marks and means didn't matter anymore or suddenly became silly it's that they didn't save Christ did the ultimate saving but I just want to say it's not that the culture didn't matter I'm going to get back to that point it, they just they didn't save it's through grace by faith alone not works so again what we now call Christianity no us versus them it's a continuation of the same story now expanded to be offered as a blessing to all nations and I want us to be able to sort of feel in our gut the enormity of that culture shock and I don't think it's very hard. Now, these aren't like faith-based examples, but the us and them in this culture that we live in is so extreme. I mean, we know that once rules were lifted in the law about racial segregation, did our nation switch or did we have a whole lot of bad us and them still going on? I mean, it's awful. How about the us and them in the political realm? We us and them all over the place. You can feel it. Pick the one you us and them honestly just get a little cringy over and just keep the cringy and now take it into how it felt to try to figure out how to be not us and them as one new body. That's like the revolutionary part of what Paul is saying. Um, okay, see, this is what happens when I just get going. 
Okay, now I need to read. I have to say, I'm sorry, you guys. Um, the us and them thing gets me fired up, and there's a lot of examples of it, and it kind of can um, be hard to carry the importance of personhood remaining when you're talking also about joining people together without getting rid of their individual personhood. So that's the stuff that gets me a little um, fired up when I'm trying to stay on track here. Okay, so we're just going to start into the passage um, in 11, we're starting in 11. Therefore, because of all the stuff that we've talked about the last few weeks, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the first piece. And right off the bat, I love this, Paul is calling the Gentiles to remember. And the reason I point that out is because that's the call all the time to the nation of Israel. All the time they're called, remember therefore. Uh, Exodus 13, three, Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you come out of Egypt. And from there we get these Passover celebrations because the nation was called to a cyclical remembrance of God's extreme faithfulness because that was supposed to shape them as a people. Uh, in Deuteronomy 4.9, be careful and watch yourselves closely so you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Be a nation who remembers. The call to remember all the time. Ebenezer stones are stones of remembrance. Put these down in important places to remember God's faithfulness and the story of your people so you don't forget it. And now he takes that language and he takes it to the Gentiles and he says in verse 12, this dismal picture um, wait, can we go back to the one? I think I have it underlined. Uh, remember, formerly you were Gentiles by birth, blah, blah, blah. Remember, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship. You were foreigners. You were without hope, without God. Like, this is who you were. Remember that. Remember that, because then verse 13, because all that's been undone. There's your past standing, verse 12, and your current standing, verse 13. And remember this, he's just told us, we Gentiles did not do a darn thing to earn getting into this story. Nothing. We didn't do anything. Christ accomplished it. It was God's plan the whole time. Week two of the series, that was the plan. We were in a dismal place marked by strife in this culture because these two groups were so different. But now, that was the sandwich part one. We get to the part, the but now. Okay, so starting, picking up in 14. He himself is our peace, who's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulation. So what's this dividing wall? It might mean there was literally in the big temple in Jerusalem, there was a wall that was the court of the Gentiles. Like they could hang out. There were, it was okay in the Jewish nation. There were, there were people that were honored as God-fearers. Like they were like, yeah, your God is like your God is the one true God. They could still come and go that far to worship, but 
there was a wall that literally they couldn't go in further than that. Um, if you guys, I don't know if you know this or not, um, you can uh, or could or can still become Jewish. You can go through a process, but there's not like an evangelism to come join. This is a nation. This is a cultural identity. And so there was literally a wall. Some people think it means more of the law, this law that was this barrier between these two groups that made no sense to the Gentiles. I personally think that kind of language is a both and. It's like, yes, the physical, but also the cultural. It's just a huge barrier. And so I'm not too tied up on which. I'm a both and person personally. But then this makes us think, well, well then hold on. Didn't you just say, like, is the law bad then? And no, remember Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so this by the blood language means the thing that the law couldn't do is now accomplished by God's self, Jesus. That's the only way that that law could be fulfilled, but it doesn't make it bad. So the law has been annulled by the death of Christ because the enmity and the distance between peoples, that's what's been destroyed. That's the wall that's been destroyed. The enmity, the difference. So the purpose of that destruction is creation of one new people. That's the important thing. One new person. So his purpose, picking up in 15, I think, so is to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So I think this fleshy language is actually important. Like I'm, This is the last time now. Like he starts out with circumcision. That was a mark in your flesh, right? And so it just is. And so then he's talking about in Christ's body. And then we're becoming one body. You guys, the, the humanness, the fleshy bodiness of this is intentional. We don't shy away from that. Like that's it's supposed to pick up on this. God's own flesh took this reconciliation mark via the cross and created a peace that no other human flesh mark could maintain. That's what we're hearing. That's the by the blood language that you hear in church sometimes that seems strange. So that's, that's the deli goodness of our sandwich, right? Like Christ did this thing, God's self, that couldn't happen any other way. So now we go back to our other layer. Our position on the other side of that truth again um, is in 19. Oh dear. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. That goes back to that language of like before they were set apart from the commonwealth of Israel. Remember in verses 11 to 12? That is like a political uh, citizenship language, you know, like you are no longer, you were excluded from that citizenship. Now you no longer are. You are fellow citizens now. That's your identity now. One body, one household, and then temple. This is the language that goes on in 19 to 22. We're using this temple body household language. And so when it's talking about this being built on the prophets and apostles, that means like you're being a continuation of the story that was already started. So that's that language. Like It's still, you're built on those who've been before you. This is your identity as a church, by the way, church, were built on a whole bunch of years of those who went before us, including these people in Ephesus. So we're built up by those who have gone before us, 
Christ is the cornerstone. That's that foundational stone in the building that makes everything go right. And if you have it wrong, it's wonky. But with Christ, it's no wonky. It's built up perfectly. And then all of these Gentiles and Jews are compactly built together. Think like brick and mortar to form, along with the Jews, a holy temple in the Lord And the word is, I'm not even going to try to say it in Greek. It's a habitation for God's spirit. Now, this is something I think is interesting because Paul is talking to the Gentile Christians, right? He's, the Jews would be reading this too. And to the Jewish imagination, we talk about this. You talk temple and they're like, we got it. That means God's presence in the world now. It was the Ark and the Covenant. It was a tabernacle. Now we have our temple. It's in the Holy of Holies. Where's God? holy of holies in the temple in Jerusalem. But now he's talking to Gentiles and they're in Ephesus and their temple is the temple of Artemis, one of the wonders of the ancient world, a ginormous spectacle. People would travel to go see this, this place that marked their culture, their city, their world, part of their commerce, all of it wrapped up. Remember, religion wasn't a separate thing in this culture. Your, your world, your politics, your faith, your commerce, it was like woven together. And they stood in the shadow of a temple that was a super big deal in the ancient world. And so I think when Paul is using this temple language, it has meaning for the Jews and it has meaning for the Gentiles. They would think perhaps they themselves are now the landmark of, of where God is, God's own presence in the world, the landmark no longer about this fancy place. Like, it's us? We're the landmark of the presence of God? That's really big, big language to Jew and Gentile. It's who we are. It's who we are still. We are that temple presence, a holy place, God's presence in us, through us to the world. Here's where I have to pause and we'll definitely go off note at least once. So I didn't know, people are passionate about different things, right? Some of you are like super excited because it's the Super Bowl today. You're passionate about football. I like the commercials okay, but I really like pizza. Like, I love that you're passionate though because it makes for good commercials. Like we wouldn't invest in commercials if you weren't passionate. That's great. Some of you get passionate about board games. You literally become a different person with friends when competition comes up. I love that. I didn't know until recently that I am passionate about the role of the church in the world today, ecclesiology. I didn't know I was passionate about it. When I was a little girl dreaming of being a zookeeper, the role of the church was nowhere on my radar, nowhere. It was only recently that I realized in conversations and stuff that I am like fiery about this. And I think that part of the reason I get fiery about this is that I came to realize in time that somewhere along the way, I don't blame anyone. I just picked up on this narrative that it was important for me to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ to save me a sinner for heaven someday. That was the story. That was like the whole plot line. And I was like, okay, I'm in. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's awesome. It's very personal, but it's not just personal. And I am saved for heaven someday. And that's going to be awesome. But nobody talked about not only being saved from something, but being saved into something. Now, 
I just missed that memo until later on in my life and I started to think it's gotta matter more than that someday. There's gotta be something more. And the language of the Bible is so full. You guys know that when, when we read in our Bibles in English, you, it should be y'all. There's no plural you except in y'all. So read it as y'all. But I was reading the Bible for years and I was thinking, yes, Melissa, this is the message for you. And I didn't catch that the whole point and purpose and beauty of God's restorative plan was that intersections of heaven and earth get to happen now in and through the people of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is beautiful. Oh, Julie. (laughs) Julie's back. I love you. Um, You guys, it's so good. It's so, so good. So why do I get fiery? Andy can attest to this. I got so stuck on this message this week. I was just like kind of mad and just frustrated. And this is definitely the notes are just done now. Okay. So here's what happened. I love this stuff. I get so excited about this stuff and it's so important that we know it and we do it right. But earlier this week on Thursday, two totally separate people, not even here in Chicago, nothing to do with Missy O'Day, two totally separate people in my life, separate phone calls, separate situations, and they could not figure out their voice in very hard circumstances. This wasn't about church per se, but the church isn't about Sunday morning or this building, right? It's the people of God, right? And so in one of them, it was a Christian institution another one it was a Christian ministry and the one was my friend just trying to figure out how could she use her voice because she realized she had experienced an abuse of power and somebody else said they had too and she's trying to figure out what do I do because I don't think my little voice can have any take in this situation and I was talking to her and my heart was breaking because that's not supposed to be the way it is in the people of God. And then I got on a phone call later in the night and it was one of my friends who's saying, this isn't what I thought. Everyone around me has a platform. So I don't think my voice has a place here. And I was like, platform, what are we talking about? And so here's why I got stuck because I care so much about how it is that we do this life together in the here and now. But the fact is, is that the language that Paul takes about body, Family, one body, family, the unity in the holy temple, the call to unity has been misused in many circumstances. For my friends that I know who have been asked that in the name of church unity, they shush. Or in the name of church unity, we're going to skip over actual uh, reconciliation and repentance and we're going to get to the part where we say we're all okay now, right? That's creating a false narrative. That's trying to own a narrative of the church. There's so many people who are hurt by the the ways that in the name of unity, their voices have been lost and their experiences don't even know how to shape the community that they're a part of. And you guys, that's not okay. That's not unity. As I was reading through this, I know this passage doesn't say unity exactly, but that's what we're talking about. And this whole one body, we're a family when misused is incredibly harmful. And this is why I think I got stuck. So this unity thing that we're talking about, this one body, we're one body, you can't disagree. No, 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 that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't fly. That's not okay. That's not what's happening here. And so this is, I lost my glasses. This is really important. Lynn Kohick is talking about this and she says it better than me. So I'm going to say this. Unity necessitates that differences remain. Necessitates. Otherwise, it's, we're only talking about sameness. That's not what we're called to. Okay, the unity produced in Christ celebrates difference. And diversity is not asymmetrical in terms of power. She goes on to say their unity should undercut their social hierarchies 
the rejection of favoritisms helps us understand the type of unity Paul desires. It's not about creating uniformity, but about renouncing cultural privilege. What am I trying to say? Listen, us and thems, no more. No more. This isn't how it goes. And you don't get a certain seat where you get to shush the voice of somebody else. And so I was thinking about this just in our own, in our own culture, right? If you heard of the concept of like code switching, you like switch how you um, present yourself depending on the person that you're with or the, the space that you're in. And I was like, I don't want that. I don't want anyone in our community to make a call to their friend and say, I can't figure out why, where my voice can go in this topic. I don't want any of that. I think that my heart, my passion for ecclesiology is that in the name of unity, people have been really hurt. And here's where I need to say this. And that matters. And that story matters. But it breaks my heart because the people who have seen that it's not okay in different contexts have left. And they're the exact people who we need to make a better version of how to be the church. Their stories, your stories of hurt, they matter. The accountability to make sure that this does never becomes a place where a voice doesn't have an outlet, all of that matters. If we misuse the term unity, it's not unity. It's manipulation to protect an image. It is control of a narrative. It's something ugly else. But that's not unity. And I want us to be mutually accountable to one another to say this version of what God is calling us to as the people of God through the power of the Spirit in Christ matters now, not just for heaven. It matters to the world around us. And it matters in our life with one another. And so this is what I just had on my heart and that I wanted to say. Like if we become a church where you can't bring your full you, then we're not our best us. We can't be our best us without the fullness of you. And so, um, you guys, I, I get fired up about ecclesiology, not because it's a cool word, but it is. And in Greek, it's really lovely looking, and I think it's cool. But that's not why. I hope you see that. I want us to be a place where the people use their voice. Everyone can use their voice to say, I want us to be the fullest of us because it matters. Because the way that God interjects into the world today is through the Holy Spirit. Where's the Holy Spirit? In you. In us. And as we respond and as we react, as we interact, that's where God's kingdom inbreaking comes. And so let us be a church that says we want to be the fullest version of us because every person in their full self and their real voice is here by God's grace. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.